Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. You open your Bibles with me today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. Let's rise as we hear God's word proclaimed to us. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put it on it four feet, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make the mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make a two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you all about that. I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. May God bless this reading of his word today. Please have a seat. For most Americans, probably most churchgoers, you mention the Ark of the Covenant and the beginning, middle, and end of their understanding will be Indiana Jones. That's, that's what we associate the Ark with. It's the only thing that really comes to mind. And in that movie, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, a classic, you've seen it. The Ark really, I mean, it's beautiful, and the image of it is actually pretty on par with what we read today. But the function of it is kind of just like a magic box. It's a magic box that shoots lightning, kills anybody if they look inside of it, but that's pretty much all it is in the movie. But what if I told you that the Ark is so much more than just a magic box that shoots lightning. It's a storytelling device that God gave to his people to help them understand our salvation in a way we haven't really thought about before. Something I have right in front of you. It's kind of a little like if you've gone to Sunday school as a kid or helped out with Sunday school and made those little booklets, you know the color swatch booklets? where you lead them through the green and the red and the black and the white, all those different colors, and it tells them about the different steps on the Roman road to salvation. It's a bit of what the ark is functionally doing 
in the lives of the believers of the Old Testament. That's what the ark is. So in this passage we read, God is starting this process of, he say, I want, I want to establish a central meeting place of worship. I want to give to you, the people, a place to come meet with me. But God is very specific about it. He didn't leave it up to the people to decide, to deliberate via committee. Apparently God wasn't very Presbyterian at that moment. He said, no, from me to you, here's the exact specifications of what I want. And he starts with the central object, and that is the ark, the ark of the covenant. And he kind of builds the tabernacle from the inside out. And that's how he starts. He starts with the ark because he says it's more than just a box. This is a place for me to dwell among my people. It's a place for me to call home for right now. So every facet, when we look at this passage, you might have read it today and gone, why are we reading this? This sounds like Ikea instructions. And it's just as decipherable as when we're trying to put something together. Why are we reading this passage? What does it really have to tell us? Well, what it has to tell us is that every single detail that God gave to his people is there to teach them something about salvation. And as we go through the ark, we kind of learn and learn our salvation anew. So the first thing we learn in this passage about the ark is that it's really just an ordinary box. Four feet by three feet by three feet. It's a box made out of wood. Trust me when I say even with all the ornamentation, the extra gold that they added to it, there are many more objects and vessels. If you go to like a museum of ancient history, you will see much more impressive uh, objects than the ark actually was visually. The ark wasn't that special visually. It was just a box. It's a box made of wood, but it wasn't going to win any ark contests based on its looks alone. You see, what made the ark special wasn't what it looked like, wasn't what it was made out of, it was what was inside of it, and that was God, because God set up shop in it. You remember back at the beginning of Exodus, and at this point you're like, yeah, like five years ago when you started this series, Justin. It's a long time ago. We can't remember that. Remember at the beginning when God or Moses encountered the burning bush. What did God tell Moses? Take off your sandals. Why? The, the ground is holy. Oh, you do remember. Good. Wonderful. Gold stars for all of you. The ground around you is holy. And we talked about there was nothing special about the ground. God didn't pick a particular patch of earth that he said, that ground is more holy than any other ground. That's where I'm going to be. The ground was made holy by God's presence. And that's what's happening here in the ark. The ark is made special by this divine association. Ordinary box transformed into holiness by God's presence coming down upon it. So really, the first thing that Israel learned about the ark was that it was holy. That it was set apart. It was something very unique and very different than all the other boxes that they carried around their keepsakes in. And their, when they had to move, they packed everything into boxes and they would carry stuff. Very different than all of that. For starters, it was drilled into their head that this box could never touch the ground. The ark had these little feet attached to it so that it would never be defiled by touching the mere dirt below it. And on top of that, we read that they affixed some rings and they slid some poles through it. 
so that people would pick up the poles and they would carry the ark that way because no human hand was ever allowed to touch the ark after it was made. The priest would carry it. In fact, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, we are told specifically by God, he says, this ark is holy. You are unholy. If anything unholy touches the ark, I will strike them dead. It is a death sentence to touch the ark if you are unholy. And in fact, this indeed happened. 2 Samuel chapter 6, there was a branch of the Levite priests, this subset, that was their specialization that they were like the transportation crew. So anytime the ark had to move from one location to another, this group of priests would be the ones transporting it. So they were doing that, but as they were transporting it, the ox carrying the cart, carrying the, uh, the, the ark at the time, the ox slipped and fell and stumbled, and it looked for a moment like the ark was going to tip over, and one of the priests reached out, and the guy's name was Uzzah, he reached out, put his hand on the ark, and at the exact moment, God struck him dead. Even if he had good intentions, even if that was an instinct, the people had it drilled into their head, this ark was holy, it was set apart, and no one may touch it because of the presence of God. That was how serious God treated this. So the holiness of God in this ark taught them to revere God, His majesty, His holiness, His otherness, that they weren't. It wasn't something to take for granted. But what the Israelites back then, as the ark was being constructed and then placed into their midst, what they couldn't have possibly foreseen is that one day God would no longer limit Himself to a box in the middle of the temple. One day, God the Spirit will come to dwell in something far more important, far more special than a box. He would come to dwell in the lives of the believers. And when he did that, the same thing happened which happened to the box. When God comes upon something, guess what? It makes that thing holy. So when God came into the lives of believers, it made you and it made me holy, set apart. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us very bluntly, Paul writes, for we are the temple of the living God. There's no longer a temple out there. There's no longer a place we go that we see that is where God has set up shop. We are now the temple of the living God. Paul continues. He says, as God has said, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from other people. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Doesn't that sound familiar? They weren't allowed to touch the ark because the ark was holy. Now we are holy. And God says, touch no unclean thing. Don't say anything that's unholy. Don't do anything that's unholy. Don't even think things that are unholy. Because I have set you apart. We are made holy that the Spirit is now in us. And that's why we don't defile the temple of the Lord. Well, if you've ever gone to a courtroom, you ever be part of the jury or just there to witness a case, maybe you're really bored, watch some court TV, I don't know. You always see among all the people in the court, there's a stenographer. There's somebody sitting there in front of a little specialized machine typing away super quickly to capture every word that's said by all the judges, by the, the, 
the uh, prosecution, the defense, the witnesses, everything that's said is captured in this machine. And so that they have a written testimony of every word, they can always go back and refer to exactly what's been said. Because the testimony is now on the record. And we like to use that phrase, like, for the record, I said this. For the record, I said that. And you always say, well, where's the record? Show me the record. Well, in a court, they can show you it, right? They can actually show you a piece of paper and say, you just said this. It is now part of the court testimony. God does this exact same thing with the ark. That's part of what he's doing right here. Because inside of the ark, what does he tell the people to put? He says, I want you to put my testimony. I want you to take these Ten Commandments, the law, these promises that I've just made with you, that I would be your God, but you would be my people by obeying these laws, this promise, this testimony. I want you to take that and put it right inside of this ark and carry it around with you so that the ark would literally hold the agreement between God and the people. It would hold that testimony. So if the people said, well, God, you never told me not to lie. God said, well, let's go to the testimony. It says, absolutely, this is something you agreed to. This is a written reminder of the terms of the relationship between God and his people. And they have to carry it with them everywhere. They can't, they can't just jettison it one day. They can't pretend like it didn't exist. They can't have one of those conversations married people tend to have where like, you said this 10 months ago and you didn't keep it. I don't remember saying that. And then there's this big brouhaha and you wish there was a stenographer keeping track of your arguments so that you can go back to the record. Well, this is what God says. Well, you will always have this with you because these promises, this agreement is always binding. It's always in effect. And if you ever become confused, if your mind gets a little muddled, you can go back to the testimony. You can see what's here. It's told people they had a responsibility to live up to their terms. But also it was God so confident in his promises to the people that he says, I'm so confident I will keep my end of the bargain. I'm going to write it down literally in stone and give it to you. So I can't change it. Now later on, some you know, little trivia, if you ever ask like, what was in the ark, a little trivia, you would say, well, the Ten Commandments, the tablets were in the ark. But later on, Israel would add two more things to the ark. They would add Aaron's staff, and they would add a jar of manna. And these were to remind the people of their history and their connection to God's promises. So where's the ark today? We don't know. Once uh, Israel got conquered by the Babylonians, the ark disappeared, probably at this point, destroyed to history. Nobody knows for sure. But I can say that when Jesus was there at the temple in Jerusalem, when he was preaching in the courts, the ark was not there. The testimony was not there. And so there was a sense of loss in the people. Like they knew what the Ten Commandments were, but they no longer had this physical ark this physical testimony. So where was the testimony? Well, Jesus said, don't despair about that. The testimony is not God. This e- is not gone. This evidence of the co- covenant is not gone. In fact, we've moved its location. Its location is now put into the life of the believer. Just like how God's holiness 
comes down into us and makes us the temple of the living God. God puts his testimony in us. 1 John 5.10 says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in themselves. Let me say that again. That's really important. Whoever believes in the Son of God, do you believe in the Son of God? Then you have the testimony in yourself. God has placed His law, His command, His gospel in your life. And the best thing about that is this testimony in us doesn't have to be concealed. It's in fact something to be shared, something to be put on display, something that if somebody asks you about your faith and you have that opportunity, you can say, let me take out my testimony. Let me take out what God has promised to me, how He has fulfilled that promise, and my relationship back with God. And let me just share that with you. Because I now carry the testimony within me. Well, if what was inside of the ark interests you, let me say it only gets more fascinating the higher up you go on this constructed box. The box itself, we read, it's only merely plated in gold. But the lid, God said, to make in solid gold. Can you imagine how much that was worth in today's dollars? A lot. Priceless because of what it was. That's really heavy stuff, literally. But on top of that lid, we see figures of two cherubim. And here, Indiana Jones, they got it pretty right. You had those, those two angels with their wings facing each other, spread out like this. And you have these two figures called the cherubim. Now here is where pop culture does the Bible one of the most grave disservices ever. Because modern image of a cherubim or a cherub is a fat little baby flying around with a diaper on Valentine's Day. We call that a cherub. And what does it do? It's, it's got this dopey little grin on its face and it shoots a bow with an arrow that's got a little heart at the end and makes people fall in love with each other. And isn't that really sweet? I will say, if there is, I don't think there is, but if there is a, a guild for the cherubim in heaven, they have every right to sue Hallmark for a grave disservice. Because we know a lot about the cherubim in the Bible. The Old Testament mentions them over um, about a hundred times. A hundred times. And so we know the role of the cherubim was to guard that which was holy. We, the first instance of a cherubim is when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And we, are, we read the passage where it says, and then God placed a cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep anybody from going back in. This is what a cherubim is. It is a frightening, well-armed angel that you do not want to get on the wrong side of. And it is placed to guard things that are holy from those that are not holy. So there's no way you are getting past a cherubim. When a cherubim is on the watch, that's pretty serious. So here we look at the lid of the ark, and we have two cherubim. So right away, God is telling the people, they know, the people know what the cherubim do. They know their real role. And so they look at this, and they see those two cherubim, and they know those cherubim are guarding our figures, but they represent the guarding of the holy. Something holy is at work here. Something set apart. And God is communicating with the people that these guards are denying them access. They are unholy. They may not approach. They may not touch. They may not even commune. 
with that is which is holy. And so the, these angelic figures with their wings facing each other form what we call the mercy seat of the ark. And it's from between, this, between and above this space that God says He would communicate with the people, especially Moses and the high priest. Let's reread. If you've got your Bible still open, verse 22, God says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you. I will give you commandments. We will deal with each other there. So I want us to pause real quick because let's, let's just understand what all this ark is representing. At the bottom of the ark, inside the ark, is the testimony, the law, the promises of God, the promises of man. Above that, inside that, that ark also, is the broken promises of man. Because they've broken every single one of those Ten Commandments. They've brought upon themselves the curse of the law. They're carrying around with them their condemnation. But above that, we have the holy seat. And above that is the holiness of God. And that God, the holiness of God is guarded by these cherubim. So nothing unholy can come up and approach God. He's now inaccessible to all those who have fallen under the curse. And between the holiness of God and the condemnation of the law is the mercy seat. And this is the core, the key to understanding the ark, the most important thing for us when we look at salvation. Because one day a year, just one day, the high priest would make on the Day of Atonement a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation. He would bring an animal, a bull, he would, he would kill it, take that blood, and over the mercy seat, sprinkle seven times the blood of this animal shed for the forgiveness of these people's sins. And the blood would then cover the guilt of their sin, the people would be absolved of their sin. And now, what was below can approach what was on high. The two parties can come together because of the mercy seat. Because of the sacrifice and the blood that is now dripping off of the mercy seat. So now we see the pieces are coming together. This effective storytelling device showing the people of their path to salvation starts by making the point that God is holy in the middle of their midst, made an agreement with them, but when they could not keep their side of the agreement, God provided atonement through the sacrifice of an animal and through the blood. And this allowed God and the people to come together once more. However, what they did in the Old Testament was just a temporary provision. It was not something that lasted. It was not something that endured. Rather, a point toward something that would fulfill what the ark only pointed at. In their future, the Messiah promised to them would become this one-time-for-all sacrifice. He, as high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies and He would shed His own blood on the mercy seat. And that blood would be sufficient for all times. This atonement, or what sometimes we call the propitiation, is what made it possible to shift the, the, the blood from the animals to the blood of Christ and make atonement for our sins. Romans 3 kind of gives us the full pattern of this, the full picture. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that part, but what goes on after? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atonement by His blood to be received by faith. And that right there is Paul saying, this is the ark brought into the New Testament era. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All are unholy and unworthy of coming before God. That is us. We are unworthy when we are sinners. When we do not have the Spirit in us. We are filthy. We are degenerate. We are in despair and despicable. And we are unable to approach God. But because the high priest sacrificed himself as that beautiful, pure sacrifice, we can approach God if we believe through faith that Jesus Christ shed his blood for us. We receive this gift as a grace into our lives. Brothers and sisters, between God's holiness and our unholiness is the seed of mercy. Do you avail yourself of it by calling upon the name of the one who can save you, who shed his blood for you? Or are you still convinced at this point in your life that you can atone for yourself? That maybe you don't even need atonement. If the latter is the case, and I urge you today, take another look at what the ark is telling you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we study the ark, our hearts rejoice because what we're really studying is the image of our salvation, the image of what we've become. Because, Lord, you have made us holy and you have made us pure. You have redeemed our lives. You have brought us together in communion and fellowship with you when we used to not be in that state. And, Lord, I just pray that you would once again renew our salvation in us, renew our understanding of it, Give us great cause for joy and celebration this morning. That Lord, even if the world goes to hell in a handbasket, we are saved and You are victorious. And you have redeemed Your people. You have accomplished Your mission. And that is what the ark tells us. Lord, how wonderful You are and how great Your work. In Your name, Amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, Email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 1030 a.m. either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.